week and one of the things that we talked about was what can we do. We never anticipated that we were going to go quite this long with the, uh, with the sanctions on distancing. So we decided we wanted to put one of the choir songs on uh, the broadcast this morning. So please listen and watch. It's a prayer. The words are, hold me fast. Let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Lord, please keep me safe. Keep all of our people safe till the storm passes by.
times Satan whispers There is no use to try For there's no end of sorrow by it was recorded on March the 8th our last service together before we were put in the coronavirus situation that we find ourselves in on a personal note I miss those people I miss you and I look forward to the day that we are able to be together again Lord willing well thank you Jim and if you have your Bible Revelation chapter 22 you know, you'd think after seven weeks and three services a week, what, 21 services? Um, I'd be getting used to this, but this is just a very surreal experience that we're all going through, isn't it? And uh, I have a friend who's always sending me these little things on the Internet. Some of them are funny. Some of them are just irritants and nuisances. <laughs> he won't quit. He thinks they're all funny. But he sent me a couple things this week I thought were kind of uh, reflective of the times we're in. One of them said this, so can we expect our car insurance rates to go down because nobody can go anywhere? Just wondering, Jake for State Farm. <laughs> so a little parody on the State Farm ads, and then I like this one. People, were, people are talking about husbands and wives getting tired of each other because they're, you know, they're cooped up together all the time. And a fellow said, I have the most loving wife. Last night I woke up and she was holding a pillow tightly over my face, 
to protect me from COVID-19. And so I guess that may reflect the way some people uh, feel about each other. Then I really like this one. In four weeks, 88% of the blondes in America will disappear from the earth. I'll take you a moment on that one, but uh, uh, you can't go to the beauty shop. So uh, I think I think that one may have an element of truth. At any rate, we're getting through it the best we can, and I hope that you're doing okay where you are. You know, the question is often, where is God in all of this? Every time people go through difficulties, they say, where is God? Does he know what is going on right now? Is he not aware that across the world today, Hundreds of thousands of people are sick. Doesn't he know that people are dying around the world in multiplied thousands? And the answer is, of course he does. If a sparrow can't fall to the earth without his recognition, can a worldwide pandemic occur without his knowledge? And the answer screams for us from the pages of the Bible, absolutely not. But we think these kinds of thoughts, don't we? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he just destroy this virus? I've already recounted people are sick, people are dying. Now, I hear some people say that, well, you know, this is probably from the devil. They blame Satan. But, you know, Satan can't go beyond what God permits. When Satan persecuted Job, he came to the Lord, and the Lord says, you can go this far, but you can't go any further. You can strike his health and his wealth. You can't take his life. God limits Satan's freedoms in what he can do, even as powerful as he is. Now, many people today and I would include myself in this, we believe that COVID-19 is a warning from God, a call to repentance, if you will, a call to return to God because I'm not going to make the case for a long period of time. But you know, you know, your conscience, whether you're even a Christian or not, in your conscience today, you know that sin is so prevalent that there has literally been an explosion of evil in the last few years here in America. I don't know about other places in the world, but I know that in America today, evil is overwhelming. We know that as the prophet said, truth has fallen in the streets. It is hard to know where truth is because lies so prevail even among institutions and things that we think we could trust. I guess you heard the news. I guess Harvard University is one of the epitomes of American institutions. Well, we found out this week they applied for these small business loans, the most well-known university in the world, with $41 billion in its uh, trust accounts. And they applied for a small business loan. Now, they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar, and so now they're going to give it back. Well, that's really big of them, isn't it? That's wonderful. I really applaud them. They cheated. They got caught. Now they want to repay with $41 billion in the bank. So who can you trust today? 
And so half of the people in a recent survey by the Jerusalem Post, I believe, conducted this, half of the people in the United States in the survey said they believe that COVID-19 is a warning from God. And this not only was a, a sampling of saved people, but unsaved people as well. This, a warning from God. Half of the population in America today, almost half, 44% believe that. Now, I believe there's a principle that you'll find going through the Bible, and the principle is this. God always warns people before judgment comes. Let me state the principle again. God warns people before judgment comes. And you say, on what basis do you say that, Pastor? Well, if you will remember, before the flood came, God spoke to a man named Noah. And the Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years before he ever went to the ark. In other words, God gave the people of that generation 120 years of grace before the judgment and the wrath of God came upon that antediluvian world. Then when God was ready to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for its evil, God sent angels there. And you know the story in Genesis 18 and 19 along there. He warned them, judgment is coming. He warned Lot, judgment is coming. And Lot had to almost forcibly remove his own family. But God told him judgment is on the way. Then you come to the nation of Israel. You remember the story throughout the prophets of the captivity. God took his own people, and they became captive to the wicked and cruel Babylonians for 70 years. But before they were taken away in judgment, prophet after prophet after prophet of God went to them and pleaded with them to repent, preached up and down the streets of Jerusalem that judgment is coming unless we repent. And they never repented. They never turned back from their wickedness. So God warns people of coming judgment before that judgment falls. So today is COVID-19 one of those warnings. And I would say that I strongly suspect, I can't prove it, but I strongly suspect that it is. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is telling the people before they ever even move into the uh, land of promise, and they're gathered there, and Moses is preaching to them three different sermons, and he warns them about disobedience to God and about going into idolatry and, and deep sin. And he warns them. He says, God, if, if you don't follow the Lord, pestilences will come. That's exactly what we have now. Then he says, there will be natural causes, and he goes into that, drought and things like that, famine. And then he says there will be social chaos in the streets of your cities. And it's laid out there. You can read it's a long chapter. Deuteronomy 28, all the things that we're seeing today, they were warnings from God that judgment would fall upon the nation if they disobeyed the Lord. Now, the judgment that I believe he is warning us about today is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the judgments that will come at that time. That COVID-19 could very possibly, very possibly be a warning of the tribulation period. Now, I go to the last page of the Bible. The message today is entitled, The Last Promise. 
I give you all of that extensive background there to just read one little simple passage. It's at the end of chapter 22, the book of Revelation. He which testifieth these things, that would be Jesus, saith, surely I come quickly. Amen. And John the writer answers back, even so come Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus said, surely, without a doubt, I come quickly. And John, John's response is, even so come. Come on, Lord. I'm ready for you to return. I'll bet you a lot of people that love the Lord could say that today again. Now, these words were spoken here at the end of the book of Revelation about 65 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven. 65 years. That would put it up around 92, 3, 4, somewhere in that area, A.D., almost a century, almost at the close of the, of the first century. Now, Jesus ascended probably somewhere around 27 or 28 A.D., and so we have 65 years he's been in heaven. He comes back to the earth. And I believe he literally came back to the earth. And I turn now to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. And here John speaks. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, he was exiled there, quarantined, <laughs> I guess you could say, for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It was a Sunday. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega. There's only one person could ever say that. The first and the last. And what you see write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, that's exactly what John did. He write it in a book, and he wrote it in a book. We call the book Revelation. Re the word revelation is a Greek word, apocalypse, apocalyptos. And the word means to unveil something or to reveal something that has been hidden. So I can simply pull back my coat and show you, I can reveal, I can give you an apocalyptic view of my, of my pen that was hidden there in my coat pocket. You didn't see it until I unveiled it. I revealed it. I showed it to you. And in the same way, the book of Revelation pulls back the curtain, and it shows us the future. The future right up until the very Etern the beginning of eternity to the end of time, if you will. Now, Jesus said here, to go back to Revelation 22, Jesus said, I am coming back. Revelation 20, 22, verse 20, the first part. But note with me, he wanted you to get this message. Go back up to verse 7. And Jesus said again, Behold, I come quickly. And go to verse 12, and behold, I come quickly. Three times in this little short chapter, Jesus Christ made a promise. It's his last promise on earth. 
the last promise on earth that Jesus Christ ever made was not the Great Commission. That was the last promise before the ascension. But he came back 65 years later, and three times he said, I am coming back. And he says it so many times in the Bible. My Bible here is on the last page with this Revelation passage. I know that this Bible here has 1,264 pages of printed material. 1,264 pages. Of those 1,264 pages, 27%, that would be what? Uh, over 400 pages deal with prophecy because 27% of your Bible deals with prophetic themes. Now, many of those prophecies have been fulfilled, but they were future when the Bible made those claims. And so John on the Isle of Patmos hears directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees him with his visible eye. Jesus talks to him and gives him an unveiling of the future of prophecy. And fulfilled prophecy, I believe, is the single greatest proof and evidence that the Bible is, in fact, infallibly inspired of God. I, I'm not going to give you illustrations. I don't have time. But, for example, I'll give you just one very brief one. The regathering of Israel in 1948. The Bible prophesied that over and over, that God would bring his people scattered throughout the world for 2,000 years. He would bring them back to their homeland. And that prophecy was fulfilled. That spectacular. And the, the, if you think about the possibilities of a nation being regathered after 2,000 years and going back across the world to its homeland, and yet we know that happened. Now, that's only one of how many fulfilled prophecies that we have seen in our Bible. This will shock you. This is a fact. The Bible refers to the second coming of Christ eight times for every time it refers to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Eight times as many prophecies that the Lord will return to the earth again as prophecies regarding the first coming. There are 1,825 references or allusions to the second coming in the 1,264 pages of my Bible. That's more than one per page if you divide that out. Over 318 of those, exactly 318 of those promises are in the New Testament alone. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. 21 of the 39 books have references to the second coming of Christ. When you come to the New Testament, 23 of the 27 books, 23 of 27, that's almost every book refers to the second coming. Every New Testament author writes about the second coming of Christ. Seven of ten chapters in the New Testament have some reference to the second coming. One in about 30 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. So when Jesus Christ said, I will come again, 
He just added three times to the total, hundreds and hundreds of references, beginning all the way back in the book of Genesis when God made a promise that Jesus Christ would come to the earth and then going right on through the rest of the Bible. I think of wonderful and precious promises to us like John 14 and 2. Jesus said, if I go away, I will come again. I think of Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the coming again. You see, there you have both phases, the blessed hope, the rapture, the coming again of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the second coming. Hebrews 9 and 28, he will appear the second time, the second time, and explicitly lays it out, without sin to salvation. So we have promise after promise, hundreds of them. Now, secondly today, the last promise of Jesus to return, we've looked at that, but I want you to note with me the supreme importance of the return of Jesus Christ. I just can't overstate the importance of this doctrine, and it is a doctrine. It is fundamental to the Christian faith. When the men met back in 1915, over 100 years ago, and they sat a group of scholars from all the different denominations, and they said, we want to define what is fundamental and essential to the Christian faith. We're not going to deal with any peripheral issues. Just what is the irreducible minimum doctrines? What is it if you took it away, you no longer have the Christian faith? And so they settled on the inspiration of the Bible. You've got to have that. That's fundamental. The virgin birth and the miraculous life of Jesus Christ. They thirdly mentioned the uh, atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Fourthly was his physical resurrection, a literal physical resurrection from the dead. And fifthly, they said, his return to the earth. Now, in that room, there were people who believed his return would be before the millennium, some after the millennium, all different kinds of views about it. But all of them agreed on this. You take away the second coming of Christ, you no longer have a pure Christian faith. You have a heresy at that point. And so there's never really been a serious debate about if he would return. The debates have all been about when he would return. And I'm going to speak to you probably tonight about that. When will Christ return? Now, there have always been mockers. There have always been scoffers who laughed at and ridiculed the very idea that Jesus Christ is alive, he is physically existent, and he's going to come back and take up where he left off before. And so people have mocked that. I'm looking in my Bible at one of the primary passages that talk about that is 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. And Peter writes, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. Now, a mark of the last days is scoffers. And a characteristic of our day is scoffers. They're walking after their own lusts. And they say, where's the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He goes on to say, they're willingly ignorant. 
They're ignorant because they want to be. They have an agenda. So dating back to the time of the New Testament, there have been scoffers, but the Bible says they will increase near the end of time. Now, I don't have time to demonstrate that, but I could make a very, very powerful argument today that there are more scoffers, more people laughing at this, ridiculing the very idea than there has ever been because there's just been a total loss of, of respect for God's written word, for the Christian faith, and so on. Now, here's one of the big differences, though, that I've observed, and that is that the mockers and scoffers of previous years were outside the realm of Christianity. They were the atheists, the agnostics, the unbelievers, the infidels. Such is not the case today. Today, ladies and gentlemen, much of the mocking, much of the scoffing comes from within the faith itself, people who claim to be Christians, men who stand behind pulpits, and they laugh at the very idea of a physical, literal return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And boy, that is so damaging to the faith. So very, very damaging. Jesus said, I'm going to come. And ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus Christ who hung on the cross for my sins and conquered death is not a liar. He has the most impeccable character and integrity of any character throughout all of history. Jesus Christ meant it, and Jesus Christ told the truth when he said, I am coming again. You say, well, why hadn't he come? Because he says there, I am coming, surely I am coming quickly. And I looked up that word quickly. I thought I knew what it meant, and I was pretty close. It means I'm coming shortly. Now, he said that, 92 or 3 or 4 A.D. I'm coming shortly. He said, I'm coming without delay. I'm coming suddenly. I'm coming by surprise. All of those terms are included in the idea of quickly, shortly, without delay, suddenly by surprise. I turn again and ask you to, to the book of 2 Peter, same chapter we were in a while ago, chapter 3. You say, well, it's been 2,000 years since he made that promise. And he said, I come quickly. Well, it hasn't been very quick. Well, it hasn't to you because you and I are such finite creatures, so limited by time. We're creatures of time. Jesus Christ said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ is not bound by time. Jesus Christ is eternal. And the reason that it seems long to us, but he said quickly, is because he measures time differently than you and I do. 2 Peter 3, verse 8, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but His long-suffering to usward. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Two things. The way the Lord keeps time, it's only been two days since he said this. 
See, a thousand years is as a day. But the second thing is, he has delayed that coming because of his love for people. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, we think it's a long time. The very first promise of Christ coming to the earth was in Genesis 3.15. And God there said to Satan, in fact, he said, someday the seed of this woman that you've tempted into sin is going to come and bruise or crush, literally, the head, your head. He is going to have victory over you. A redeemer is coming. He's coming for sure. He's certainly. Well, in Luke chapter 1, we have the story of Christ coming, his birth. Now, do you know how long it is in terms of human time from Genesis 3 to Luke 1? It's a little over 4,000 years. From the time the promises were made regarding the first coming of Christ till, the, till he was actually born, it was 4,000 years. From the time of the end of the New Testament until today is 2,000 years. So basically, we're a half time compared to the, uh, the promises for the first coming. However, I don't think it's going to be 4,000 years. And again, we can't, we can't study every little uh, rivulet of prophecy here today. We're going to have to stay on track. I don't think it'll be 2,000 more years, but I know this, God keeps his word. Jesus did not lie. Now, I'll tell you one reason that people are skeptical why we have those mockers today is there's been date setters in our own ranks, preachers who stood up and for whatever agendas they talked about they knew when the Lord was coming. And they set dates. I remember one, 1988, some fella, was a, he worked for NASA. He was a scientist. He was an engineer. He was a brilliant man, but he was ignorant about this. He said he put out a book, 88 Reasons Christ Will Come in 1988. And, of course, Christ didn't come. The next year he said, well, I missed something. He's going to come in 89. He didn't come in 89, of course. There's been lots of that, all the way back to 1844, a guy named Miller, a preacher, self-taught preacher. He got up and preached that Christ was coming on such and such a day. His followers sold all their possessions, went out, put on white robes, sat on a mountain somewhere, and Christ never came. People like that have hurt the cause of Christ, oh, I, I, beyond description. And so these mockers then uh, they'll listen to someone like me giving a biblical message on prophecy, and they'll say, he doesn't know what he's talking about because think of all the people who said he was coming and he hasn't come. Well, Jesus made it very clear, no man knows the day, no man knows the hour. So we don't know the date and we don't know the time. As I've told you, I do think we know the season, the general time frame. Is COVID-19 one of those warnings that tell us we are in the season of the Lord's return? You know, there ought to be so much preaching. With 27% of the Bible prophetic, 
writing. One out of four messages, if I'm preaching the Bible, ought to have something to do with prophecy, shouldn't it? And you know, as we near the end of time, as we get closer to it, don't you think there ought to be a greater emphasis? Strange phenomenon, though, in our culture today. There's very little prophetic preaching. Prophecy preaching has fallen out of favor. Some of you listening to me have attended churches where you went for years and never heard a thorough explanation or exposition of the doctrines of eschatology, big word meaning the last times, the coming of the Lord, prophetic messages. Boy, I can remember prophecy conferences. I can remember you go to the bookstore. I can remember the number one book in America for a period of about a year was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, way back in the 70s by a man named Hal Lindsey. I can remember God's people would gather at campgrounds and camps and so on. They would gather from all different churches, thousands of them. They would go to Moody Bible Institute. They'd go to different places across the country. There would be great prophetic conferences. I remember W.A. Crispell putting out a book called Why I Am a Premillennialist, Why I Preach the Premillennial Faith. And it was the talk of the religious world that grand old preacher from Dallas, giving the biblical reasons that Christ would come before he set up his kingdom. I remember J. Vernon McGee and Adrian Rogers and Theodore Epp on Back to the Bible and the radio Bible class with Dr. DeHaan and Jerry Falwell and the preachers he had in, the Oliver Greens and, and Dr. Lakins. I can remember Billy Graham clearly preaching, Jesus Christ is coming back today. You need to get ready. I can remember John Walford down at Dallas Seminary and uh, Charles Ryrie uh, being authorities on this, everybody reading their books and following their work. I can remember when Virtually every evangelical Christian in America carried a Schofield Bible to church that laid out the coming of the Lord probably more clearly than any other study Bible even to this day. And today, there's almost no prophetic preaching. You say, why? Well, it might be that Satan has blinded us to the importance of it. And secondly, it might be that the second coming is the ultimate disruption of people's life. I mean, whatever you are replying, you can have your wedding planned or opening your business or your funeral, and it isn't going to matter. The second coming is going to be the absolute disruptor, turning everybody's life, the whole world, upside down at the moment of the rapture. And it also means that there is an accountability. The second coming of Christ says, we're going to give an account of the deeds that we've done while we lived on this earth. So today, people don't want to hear that Jesus is going to be not only the Savior, He's going to be the great disruptor. He's going to come and set everything else, set everything on a different timetable, if you will. I've noticed that Popular preaching today caters to the self. 
It's about making people feel good. Uh, I've noticed that even during this thing, every message seems to be on giving people confidence and overcoming their fears. And I've done a fair amount of that already, and I'll continue to do it. I want to assuage people's fears. But why is it we have so many fears? I mean, we have the blessed hope. If you're saved today, the worst thing that could happen to you is you could go to heaven. Why is it that we have to keep on pounding that same nail? Why is it that we're not talking about a bigger picture here that might need to be preached? I've noticed that by reading the books of preachers and so on, how to be a success, a, a success. Our preachers have turned into inspirational, motivational speakers rather than expositors of God's Word. I've noticed that we talk about how to be a better you, a better dad, a better husband, a better businessman, a better something. And you know, the Bible has some of that in it, but it doesn't have it in there 1,845 times like it does, I'm coming back. Be ready when I do. I heard a man just this week talk about that uh, there was an analysis done of four weeks of preaching leading up to Easter by the largest churches in America. And this man lamented the fact that there's very little preaching on the full gospel. All there's allusions to Christ died for our sins. This man's name is Todd Friel. He's very reputable. And he says, you would think that four weeks leading up to Easter, there would be an immense amount of emphasis on the gospel, the cross, sin, and how to deal with it. But there was almost none. There was no allusions to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How sad. You see, prophecy is so important because it teaches us that God has a plan. It teaches us that history has a purpose, that all the mysteries of the universe are going to be revealed. All the questions are going to be answered. And they'll be answered when Christ comes back and he puts it all together. Lastly and quickly, so what is the great purpose of the Lord's coming? You may even want to write these down because I think they're so critically important. The purpose of the Lord's return, number one, to bring history to a conclusion. I repeat, God has a plan. God has a purpose. History is not open-ended. Life is not going to just go on and on and on and on perpetually. God has a plan, and history is the culmination. It is the final working out of that plan, and it revolves around the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. History is not going to conclude. The purpose for which this world was created is not going to conclude without Christ here and on the scene. Jesus is coming to bring history to a conclusion. Number two, he's coming back to reverse the effects of the fall, to reverse the curse that was put upon the earth because of man's sin and because Adam and Eve rebelled. And thirdly, he's coming back to keep his promises. 
As I've stated, if I go away, I will come again, said our Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, history, or pardon me, the second coming, he comes back to pour out his judgment on an evil world. Now, I know people don't want to hear that one, but boy, that one is, that takes up a lot of space in your Bible. He is coming back to pour out judgment on an evil world. Psalm 7 and 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. Isaiah 26 and 21, listen to this one. Behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The Lord is coming out of his place, heaven. Why? To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And that great passage from Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17 Introducing the midpoint of the tribulation period, the great day of his wrath is come, and who will be able to stand? He is coming back to pour out judgment. Judgment is coming. Boy, preachers aren't supposed to say that. That's how you, that's, that's how you get people to hit the off button. That's why people don't come to church in America today. I don't want really to hear that. That's, that's negative, Pastor. It might be, but ladies and gentlemen, it is the truth. 1,845 promises say, I'm coming. And when I come, judgment will come with me. And the last thing is he's coming to set up his kingdom. In the, the chapter uh, preceding, a chapter 2 here, Revelation 20, you may want to read it, and you take your pen and circle one word that appears there six times. It's thousand. Six times it talks about a thousand-year period of time. Six times it talks about him ruling and reigning and a kingdom, a kingdom where there will be peace over all the earth. The weapons will be melted and put away, and they will become farm implements. Justice will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Righteousness will prevail. God, through Jesus Christ, will rule and reign over the earth. Now, he has a plan. And right now, I tell you, his plan is right on schedule, I believe, to the minute. He's in control. He will do right. Justice is going to prevail. Peace is going to come. Death and disease and pestilences and pandemics are going to end. Evil is going to be punished. Wrong is going to be made right. But it will require the presence of Jesus Christ himself, not some man, not the United Nations, not the scientist. Jesus Christ himself will be required to bring the, all of that into being. And he is coming back. I like what Titus wrote. It's the blessed hope. It's the hope that blesses God's people. It is the hope that gives us hope. It is the greatest day this world is ever going to see. 
when our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, burst through the clouds, we're caught up to be with him in the air at the rapture. And then seven years later, coming back to pour out that judgment to straighten out all the wrongs and make them right. The return of Christ to the earth, his last promise. Bow your head with me, if you will, right there in your home. You're probably sitting in a living room or a family room or maybe a bedroom, lying on the bed watching a television. doesn't matter where you are right now. Are you ready? He's going to come instantly, quickly. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and you won't have a chance then. Oh, my friend, listen to me today. If you're not ready for his return, if there's even a question about his return, please, today, pray and receive Christ as your Savior. The timeless theme, earth and heaven will pass away. It's not a dream. God will make all things new that day. Gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. Evil is banished to eternity. Great. 
In the 